Well, good morning. Welcome to Seabreeze. Great to be with everybody. My name is Elliot, uh, like Joanna said, and I'm the Connection Pastor here. I woke up this morning and um, my voice had dropped about an octave, and so either I'm going through puberty again or um, it just is fitting for this message series we're doing on heroes that we're getting started today. So either way, uh, God's behind it, so he'll work it out. Um, What we're doing in this series is we're really asking the question, who do you look up to? Who is it that you want to be like? Who do you, who do you look at and say, I want, to, I want to kind of model my life after them? Who are, your, who are your heroes? That's kind of the question that we're asking. And whether it's, a, whether it's a character from a movie or maybe it's an actual superhero or an actor or a famous athlete, maybe it's a member of our family. You know, this weekend as we observe Memorial Day, maybe there's somebody you know who they gave their life for this country. I mean, whoever it is or whatever reason, we choose heroes because we've come to the conclusion that they've done something significant. They've done something that it's worth kind of paying attention to and modeling some part of our life after what they've done. And the Bible is actually full of stories of individuals who God looks at their life and God says what they did is significant. What they did should be paid attention to by others, and that's something that people should emulate. And so in this series, we're going to look at some of these different individuals found in the pages of the Bible and see what was it that they did that we can learn from in moving forward with our lives. Now for me, my favorite superhero has always kind of been Batman. And I think the reason that I've chosen Batman is because you could argue that he's not super. I mean, he is, an, he is a hero, he saves people, but Superman, Superman's from another planet. Superman has special powers. He, you know, can see through walls. He can fly. He can shoot lasers out of his eyes. The X-Men, they're mutants. I mean, they're, you know, they have these mutations that gives them these special abilities that nobody else has. I mean, their, their power is obvious. But, I mean, Batman, Bruce Wayne, I mean, he's just kind of an ordinary guy. I mean, yeah, he's a billionaire. I get that part of it. But when it comes down to it, he just kind of, he's decided that he's going to live for something more. And that is what makes him a hero. So it's really his kind of, his, the relatable nature of his humanity that for me kind of sets him up as, that's the kind of hero that I would want to be like. And it's kind of similar with the people that we're going to look at through this series. As I think a lot of them, we'd be surprised by them being included as heroes kind of like Batman being included as a superhero. When we look at their lives, we don't see people that are just these amazing physical specimens who, you know, can fly and have telepathy and can do all these things and can move objects. And we don't see people like that. We actually see a lot of ordinary people. We see people who have a lot of flaws. We see people who, like us, struggle with an internal battle of sin. And there was something about their lives, though, that even though they're ordinary and they're just like us, they chose an approach to life that is very uncommon, an approach that was uncommon in their day and time, and it's still uncommon today. And it's an approach that God looks at, and he says, that's the approach to life that I bless. He actually promises to bless it. So as we look at these individuals, we're specifically going to look at, well, what was their approach that kind of set them apart as unique where God got behind it. Because the interesting thing is, is when God's blessing is on a person's life, he can take a seemingly small contribution and he can exponentially increase it to where that thing that looked so small and other people around are like, that's not going to have an impact. And even maybe the individual is going through it just saying, 
hey, I'm just kind of bringing to God the best that I have. But when God's blessings on a person's life, he can take that action and he can multiply it and he can impact generations. I mean, Jesus is God can actually shape the flow of humanity and history based on individuals who take a specific approach to life and following him. So in this series, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of these individuals and ask the question, what is their approach? So today we're starting with a guy by the name of Gideon. Now Gideon, he lived um, in a period of time in Israel's history. Uh, It's recorded in the book of Judges. Actually, Judges chapters 6 through 8 is where you can read Gideon's story. And the theme of that book um, in Judges is it explains what happens when God's people don't address sin and take God's commands seriously. So as you read through that book, you see that theme continuously coming up. I guess with a deeper voice, you got to drink more water. Um, but there's this, in the, in the book, there's this repeated downward spiral of events. And if you read through it, you'll see this. And it starts with the people experience God's blessing. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them into the promised land. He's given them his law. He said, hey, if you want to continue to live a blessed life, this is how you're supposed to live. This is how I designed the world to work, how you're supposed to operate. He's blessed them, but then the people rebel against God. They ignore him. They kind of head off in their own direction, do their own thing. And as a result of their rebellion, it brings consequence in their life. And the consequence takes many different forms through the book of Judges, but they experience some kind of consequence. And then after a period of time where the pain kind of gets bad enough to where they kind of realize, oh yeah, this is because we've rebelled against God. They go back to God, they cry out for mercy. God, in his heart of mercy, he raises up some individual called a judge in this book, somebody who comes in and saves the people and then leads the people for a period of time. But because it's this cycle, they get the blessing and then it's not long before they start to forget what God has done. They enter back into rebellion and then the consequences. And as you read through the book, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. It's just a spiral downward. So Gideon is one of the characters in this book that God raises up in response to Israel's cry for mercy. And what Gideon does is nothing short of amazing. Gideon actually becomes a general and under his leadership, Israel brings about one of the greatest military battle victories in all of history. Actually, Gideon, the situation they find themselves in, because of their rebellion, the consequence they experienced at that time was there was a neighboring people group called the Midianites. The Midianites came in and conquered Israel and were kind of ruling over them. So then Gideon's used to, he's, he's used by God to defeat the Midianites so that the Israelites can have peace. And so Gideon has an army of 32,000 men, which you hear that number and you think, wow, that's a lot of people, 32,000. But the Midianites have an army of 135,000. So Gideon, he's outnumbered right off the bat. He's outnumbered four to one. And they didn't have like the weaponry advances that we have today. They didn't have the technology. So they're fighting with like shields and spears and swords and bows and arrows. So your greatest advantage in that kind of combat was the number of people in your army. So you wanted, if they had 135,000, you wanted 135,000 or more. You didn't want 32,000. Four to one odds, those are terrible. Any military strategist would say, if Gideon's going to win, he's got to get more men in his army. But actually, the opposite happens. God comes to Gideon and he says to Gideon, Gideon, you actually have too many guys in your army. You need to shrink the size. And surprisingly, Gideon, instead of kind of doing what everybody else would have done, Gideon says, okay, God said to do it, so I'm going to do it. So he says, hey, show of hands, who's afraid of going into battle? 
I mean, and unsurprisingly, I mean, four to one odds. I mean, most guys are going to raise their hand. So actually, 22,000 guys raise their hand and leave. The army shrinks to 10,000. 10,000 against 135, outnumbered 13 to 1. Then God comes to Gideon again. He says, Gideon, still too big. you got to shrink this army again. And Gideon goes along. He obeys God. You know, he doesn't sit there and argue and complain. He says, okay, God said to do it. i got to do it again. Shrinks it down to 300 men, outnumbered 450 to 1. I mean, again, they didn't have like today's weaponry where you can just kind of sit in a room and fight the enemy, you know, with a joystick and a computer screen. They didn't have that. I mean, we're talking like this is hand to hand, 450 to one. That's insane. Everybody looking at that is like Gideon is going to get completely annihilated. Actually, the opposite happens. Gideon doesn't just win. It's an all out rout. I mean, it's so bad that the enemy is running in the opposite direction, trying to get away as fast as possible because the battle is so incredible. So the question that we've got to ask is, okay, so Gideon's used by God in this heroic way, but what was it about Gideon that allowed him to be used in that way? Because actually when you look at Gideon and you explore his life, you start reading from the beginning of his story, you don't find the man where people looked at him and said, you know what, this guy Gideon, he's probably going to be used by God to do great things. He's probably going to be used by God to bring about one of the greatest military victories in all of history. They didn't look at Gideon and come to that conclusion. Actually, when you start reading about his life, what you find is you find a man who's really timid, a man who's afraid of the circumstances going on around him, a man full of fear, a man who actually, from his own words, kind of admits that he doesn't believe that God is present and active in everyday life. So the question's got to be asked, how in the world does Gideon go from somebody who's timid and fearful and doesn't believe God is active to one of the greatest military leaders in all of history, and under his rule, Israel experiences an extended period of peace. What was it that happened to take him from this to this? Well, the answer is is something we need to pay attention to. The answer is his fear shifted. Specifically, his fear shifted from horizontal to vertical. And that's what we're going to explore today, is this fear shift for us as well as Gideon. In order for us to be used by God in amazing ways, we're going to go, have to undergo a, a similar fear shift. Now, when we talk about fear, oftentimes people refer to fear in negative terms. It's something bad. It's something that should be, should be overcome. We should conquer our fear. Actually, there was a clothing brand when I was gl- growing up called No Fear. A lot of my friends would wear their stuff, and they had some catchy slogans. But if you sit down and you actually think about it, Living with no fear is actually kind of a stupid way to live. I mean, fear is actually a gift. I mean, I'm assuming when you drove here this morning, you didn't drive on the left side of the road. I'm assuming when you came to a red light, you stopped at the red light. I know I did. I don't want to know what could happen to the consequences of driving into oncoming traffic. You know, I don't want to get pulled over, you know, by a police officer and get a ticket. You know, so that, that fear is actually a good thing. It protects me. Fear is, fear is a gift. Fear actually causes us to take life seriously. Fear can be a very good thing. Fear, whatever we fear, it, it captures our attention. It gets our focus. It shapes our behavior, and it shapes what we do in life, the decisions that we make. My son, we were recently at the beach running around playing, and my son loves the beach. He's about a year and a half old. His name's Cohen, and he just was having a great time at the beach. And there were some, some dogs around at the 
where we were at, and they were kind of oblivious to him, ignoring him, and he was ignoring them. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, he's just, you know, running, having a great time. Out of nowhere, this dog comes in and just lights my son up. I mean, just like, just, I mean, it was a, like, as a mom, I think it's like this, like, moment of terror. But as a dad, I was kind of like, well, that was an impressive hit, you know. And this dog just, bam, and the dog had to, he's a big dog, I'm telling you. It's probably 70 pounds. Cohen weighs, like, 25 pounds wasn't even close. And then kind of when I woke up to like, oh, it's my son, you know, and it's not just an impressive hit. You know, we run over and we pick him up and he's just screaming. He's crying. He's upset. So we calm him down and the owner of the dog runs over and was so apologetic and the dog was just being playful. I get it, but you know, the dog's three times coincide, so it doesn't really, you know, they didn't play together that well. But once we calmed Cohen down and kind of got him settled and we started playing again in the sand, his head was on a swivel for the rest of the day. He knew where every single dog on the beach was at all times. I mean, we'd be building a sandcastle, and he was just, you know, he just knew where they were at. And it's because he was afraid of another sneak attack by this wild beast. He didn't want that to happen. So he was aware. His fear informed him of what was going on, and he took stuff seriously. Same thing in our lives. And that's what fear does. Fear, we spend time thinking about what we fear. It gets our attention. Now, the important thing is, is are we fearing the right thing? The most common type of fear that we have is horizontal fear. Horizontal fear would be fear of kind of what we can see going on around us, fear of people, fear of circumstances. So we ask questions, are the circumstances in my favor? Is it advantageous for me to do this in this situation or not? We ask questions like, how will people respond? Will they make fun of me? Will they approve of me? Will they reject me? We ask questions like this. We sometimes maybe fear missing out. Maybe it's a fear of embarrassment or a fear of being disappointed. I've wrestled with that one, the fear of being disappointed. But the problem is, is horizontal fear can easily get in the way of us doing what God wants us to do. When we operate life out of horizontal fear, fear of people or fear of circumstances, it can easily prevent us from doing the heroic stuff that God has for us to do. Actually, when you start reading about Gideon, what you find is he's operating based on horizontal fear. I already kind of explained this cycle of they, the people of Israel, they experience God's blessing, and then there's rebellion, and then there's consequences. So the nation of Midian came in and started and took over where Israel was at. They conquered them. And the Midianites operated kind of like a mob. They would kind of come in at any period of time. They would take your food. They would take your money, whatever you had. They'd kind of rough you up a little bit, and then they would leave. And there was nothing you could do about it because they were bigger and they were more powerful. So that's the situation that Gideon finds himself in. That's what he's, he's living in. Those are the circumstances. They're kind of under this oppression from this neighboring people. So Gideon He's a farmer. And when you first start reading about his story in Judges 6, an interesting thing is said. It said he's threshing wheat at a wine press. And that's one of those things when you read that in the Bible, you know, you kind of skip over it. But it's telling us something significant about Gideon. Because if if you know anything about harvesting wheat, you know that when you thresh the wheat and you separate the kernel of grain from the chaff, you want there to be wind. You want to do that out in the open field so that the wind can blow away the chaff. A wine press is kind of down in this kind of low region. There's kind of a grove of trees around it. It's down in a ravine. There's not very much wind. So when it comes to threshing wheat, very ineffective. Now, if you're trying to hide out and sneak around so nobody will know that you're doing this, it's a great place to be. 
So when we find Gideon, he's sneaking around. He's trying to prevent anybody from knowing what he's doing. So he's sneaking around down there trying to get this food together. An angel of the Lord appears to him. And this is what the angel of the Lord says. He says this. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That is one of the more ironic greetings in all of scripture. Here's this guy hiding out, sneaking around, hiding his food. And the angel shows up and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. You can just imagine Gideon kind of turning and looking out of the corner of his eye with a look of skepticism. Gideon says this in the very next verse. He says, pardon me, my Lord. Another way of saying that is, hey, not to be rude, not to be rude. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Hey, not to be rude, but just look around. God's not with us. That's what he says. Where are all his, his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. So what he's saying is, hey, God might have been active in the past. You know, I know there's all these great stories of he parted the waters and all these miracles he performed. You know, there's these great wonders, but where are those now? I mean, he did those in the past, but he's not active anymore. He's abandoned us. It's not like he's just not active. He's actually removed himself and doesn't want anything to do with us. It's the conclusion that Gideon's come to based on the circumstances he sees going on around him. And I just want to point out, I think it's easy for us to kind of come to similar conclusions in our lives. We read these amazing stories in the Bible of God being active and doing these wonderful things, but then we look at the circumstances of how life's working out for me, and we just ask the question, I just don't think God's active anymore. I don't, I don't think that he has the power to do that any longer. We come to a very similar conclusion as Gideon does. The angel speaks to him again, this time gives him an instruction. He says, hey, God wants you to go and save Israel, and God is with you as you do that. Instead of responding to the instruction and asking clarifying questions, Gideon, again, he just points to the horizontal. He points to another fear he has. He actually, what he says is he says, hey, dude, do you not realize, he says, pardon me again, hey, not to be rude, but do you not realize that I am, I'm the least significant member of my family? I'm the runt. Like, I'm the, I'm the lowest of the low in my family. And my family, we're the most unimportant family of any of the surrounding families. So you're talking to the low man on the totem pole here. Like, I have no value, no worth. I can't get anything done. And you're telling me to go save Israel? Like, you need to go talk to somebody else. What Gideon's saying is he's saying, he's, he's again, he's pointing to circumstances. Hey, if I do this, if I take action, like, I'll just get beat up. I'll just get made fun of. I'm going to lose. It's not worth it for me to do this. And what we realize when we're introduced to Gideon in this situation is he responds to what God is telling him to do. What Gideon's doing in response is he's just looking to the horizontal. He's looking to the people that are around him. He's looking to the circumstances. And he's really just come to the conclusion that he was on his own, that God is not present, and God is not able. And actually, when we operate out of horizontal fear, that's the same conclusion that we've come to. When we move through life and make decisions based on what people might think or what people could say or do or how the circumstances are going, and that's, that's kind of what controls us, really we've come to the conclusion that I'm on my own here. Like, it's up to me. If, if I'm going to make it through this life, if this is going to work out good, it's, it's up to me. It's all up to me. I'm on my own. God is not present. He's not involved. He's not able. He's not powerful. If he said do something, yeah, he might have done it in the past, but now, you know, he's not going to come through for me. That's the conclusion that we've come to when we operate based on horizontal fear. And I'll just tell you, like, this is something that we all struggle with. I mean, for me, there's some different ways that this could look for me. One of the, one of the ways this looks for me is there are some experiences in my past um, that caused me to experience a fear of embarrassment. 
That probably seems weird because I get up on stage and I speak and they say like public speaking is one of the one of the greatest fears people have, but I do. I have some fears from my past. I mean, it's like I have recollection of it. When I think about it, it's like it happened yesterday where I was so embarrassed and, and it just was a terrible situation. So sometimes if I'm not careful, as I think about making decisions or doing certain things, that can kind of start to creep in and I don't want to experience that again. And so again, that fear of the horizontal, how are people going to respond? Are they going to, are they going to mock me? Are they going to reject me? That can easily influence the decisions that we make as we move through life. And what God wants to do and what he will do is he's going to help us shift from this horizontal, what I can see, people, circumstances, shift from this to shift to making decisions based on what he has said. Instead of navigating life, kind of reading the people around us and reading the circumstances, he's going to shift us to look up to the vertical, to him, and take our cues and instructions from him. That means when he says do something, we say, okay, we're not operating based on the horizontal, we're operating out of fear of the vertical. And the reason this is so important that God wants us to make this shift is we often think that life flows from what's going on around us. We see how the world is working, we see other people, and we think, okay, like if my life's gonna be happy, I've gotta figure out how to navigate this kind of this field around me, this playing field that I can see. If if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be content in life, you know, these circumstances are gonna have to work out in this situation. We really think life flows out of what we can see. But the reality is above what we can see is God. And He's actually the one through whom life flows. And so God's going to put us in situations and give us opportunities to realize that he's more powerful than the circumstances. And he's more influential, and what he says is more authoritative than what people say. And God is going to continuously put us in situations where we've got to choose the vertical. Actually, as you read through the Bible, this idea of vertical fear, the Bible refers to it as fear of the Lord. And the Bible has all kinds of stuff to say about it. It says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to navigate life, saying, hey, if you want to know how to navigate life, if you want to know the best path forward full of the most blessing, that's what wisdom gives. If you want to know how to do that, it starts with vertical fear. It starts with taking God seriously and fearing him. So if God says, hey, don't participate in this activity, this isn't good, then we say, okay, because of the vertical fear, I'm not going to participate in that. If God says, I want you to take action in this area, you know, I want you to change the way you talk about your boss, and here's how I want you to talk about your boss and interact with coworkers. We say, okay, because God said it, I'm going to take him seriously, the vertical fear. Now, if horizontal fear has come to the conclusion that I'm on my own, God is not present, he is not able, then vertical fear is coming from the conclusion that I am not on my own. God is present. And he is able. That's what vertical fear really stems from. I'm not on my own. I'm not alone in this. You know, I'm not the only one. I'm not the one that has to figure it all out. And I'm going to move through life based on my willpower and my strength. That's not true. I'm not on my own. God's present. He's not present like somebody on the other side of the room who's unaware of what's going on, just physically there, but not involved. No, he's present as in he knows every detail of what's going on. And he cares about me, and he knows what's best for me. And so he's going to navigate the path based on that. He's present, and he's able. That means that he, when he makes a promise, when he says, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, I'll bless you in this way. When he says that, he's able means he has the ability to do that. 
I mean, sometimes, like, with our kids, I kind of feel bad sometimes because my daughter, you know, she's always like, she's like, Daddy, can we have ice cream tonight? And it's like, well, we don't have ice cream tonight, but, you know, maybe another time. And she'll say, tomorrow? And I'm like, sure, we'll have it tomorrow. And then I'm sitting there going like, well, what if we don't have it tomorrow? Like, can I actually fulfill that promise that we're going to have ice cream tomorrow? And then I start, you know, well, what if this happened? Or what if this happened? Can I actually fulfill that promise? God's not like me where, you know, there's a chance that my daughter might not get ice cream tomorrow. God is, when he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. He's faithful to it. He is able. I am not on my own. God is present. He is able. That's the conclusion when we're operating based on vertical fear. Now, the question is, how do we make this shift? The shift from operating based on what people think and circumstances to operating based on what God has said. Well, you make the shift, the shift will require us to take steps of obedience. That's the only way the shift is made. The only way to make the shift is just continuing to take action based on what God has said. I wish it was easier, I really do. I wish I could say, you know, if you want to make the shift, just hear a good talk and be convinced, and then boom, everything in your brain will say, you know what, God said to do it, so I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it perfectly for the rest of my life. It's just not that easy. I mean, it, it, in order for us to look to the vertical first and not be pulled in different directions by the horizontal, what it's going to take for us to focus on Him is just time and time again, we're going to have to take those steps, and we're going to have to have real-life experience that we're not on our own. Each of us individually is going to have to experience that we are not on our own. He is present in the everyday details, and he is powerful. He is able. Life flows out of him. We have to have those experiences if we're going to operate based on vertical fear. It's actually what happens to Gideon. In order to make this shift, God gives him an opportunity to take action. It's actually right after Gideon's spoken with the angel down at the wine press. God gives him an instruction. There's something God wants him to do. Now, it's pretty interesting what God wants him to do because God tells him, hey, I want you to go and I want you to tear down an altar to Baal in this Asherah pole is what he calls it. Now, these two items, the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole, these are kind of like false gods that the surrounding people would worship. They're, They're idols. And what people believed is they believed that Baal... This, you know, this individual, this character, this false god that people would worship, they believed that Baal controlled fertility. That meant both for physical and for land. So if you wanted kids, you worshiped Baal. If you wanted a good crop, a good harvest, you worshiped Baal. So what the Israelites had done is these surrounding people are worshiping Baal, and the Israelites, they've rejected God, and so they've started to look for, okay, well, how does life work? What, what controls the flow of life? And all these other people are worshiping him, so, oh, we might as well worship him as well. So the Israelites started worshiping him. And then in Asherah pole, it was a thing, again, that people around them worshiped. So for the Israelites, in a, in a lot of ways, this was very economically and socially advantageous to have the same idols that all the surrounding people had. They were thinking, okay, well, if we include this in our worship, then we'll be more acceptable and people will get along with us and it'll help with our, you know, our economy and all these different things. So the Israelites added these things and started worshiping these things instead of God. So God goes to Gideon and says, hey, I want you to go tear down your family altars to Baal and the Asherah pole. Now, when he tells him to do this, this isn't something where Gideon's just some bachelor off on his own, and he can do this in the privacy of his home, and nobody will know about it. I mean, extended families live together. Big family units live together. So God's saying, hey, when you go tear this down, this is going to impact your entire family. This is not a little, hey, follow me in the privacy of your home and nobody will know about it. This is a, I want you to take a step of obedience 
and it's going to have wide-ranging implications. Now, surprisingly, Gideon takes that step. But what's interesting, what we discover in the story, is that horizontal fear that he was operating out of, that was still really strong. We see this wrestling match going on. I'm taking God seriously. I'm moving towards him. I'm taking this step of obedience. But there's still all these other pulls. Read what it says. Judges 6, 27, it says this. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than the daytime. But because he was afraid, he went and did it, but this pull is still there. I actually really appreciate the fact that this is included in the Bible. Sometimes we think these characters in the Bible, it's like God told them to do something. They're like, oh, God said to do it. We're going 100% in and we're going to do it perfectly. The reality is, is it's, this is a struggle. This was not easy for him. I mean, God said to do this and he knew that this would be costly. And so these horizontal fears, the fear of people and circumstances, these were still very real and active in his life. And while he did it, it wasn't perfect. But he still was like, okay, I'm going to take this step, and I'm going to trust God. And I can only imagine as he's doing this, he's like, he's torn. He's like, okay, I'm trusting God. But then at the same time, he's like, God, you told me to do this. I'm going to trust you for the outcome. He's probably thinking, yeah, but, but what if this happens? All those doomsday scenarios were running through his mind. You know, how's his family going to respond? How are the townspeople going to respond? What's going to happen if somebody finds out it was him? So he does this thing that God's told him to do. He tears down the altars, builds this altar to God. And then, you know, he you know, probably goes home, goes to bed. The next morning, everybody gets up and sees what's happened. And the people in the town were, they were pretty upset. So they launched this citywide search, this investigation. Who did this? And they're trying to figure out who in the world did it. And you can imagine Gideon, you know, he did this. He was up late at night. You can imagine he's trying to kind of stay quiet in the back of the room, not say anything, splash some water on his face. You know, don't yawn. Don't let anybody know that you were up all night. Just trying to stay low profile. But then somebody rats him out. Somebody says, it was Gideon. Gideon's the one that did this thing. This is what it says in verse 30. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole. He's got to die. All his doomsday scenarios are coming true. I mean, what's he thinking? He's probably kind of, you know, hey, I hope they don't notice. And then all somebody said, somebody's like, oh, it was Gideon. And he's like, what? Like, shh. You know, don't tell anybody. And then next thing you know, he's got to die. I mean, he's probably thinking, I never should have done it. I knew it was going to work out this way. I knew if I took action, you know, oh, man, why did I do that? Here, here we go. Who was he afraid of? One of the people he was afraid of was his family, right? That includes his dad. Who did they go to to say, hey, bring him out so that we could kill him? They go to his dad. I mean, it's just, again, he's just got to be thinking, man, here we go. And then the most amazing thing happens. His dad the same guy he's afraid of actually steps up in his defense and saves him. The same guy that when Gideon looked around, he said, okay, if I do this, here are some people that I'm afraid of, and his dad was included in that group. And what God showed Gideon by using his own dad to save him, a guy who also worshiped Baal and bowed down to the Asherah pole, by using his dad, what God showed him is, hey, I am more powerful than the circumstances. I am more powerful than the people. So when you take me seriously, Gideon, what I'm showing you is that in, the, in spite of these horizontal fears, yeah, they're pulling you, but when you take me seriously, I can override those. And I can do stuff that you wouldn't even imagine me doing. And you see this pattern actually roll out in Gideon's life. And it starts with this, and then it keeps moving. And the pattern is 
God gives him an instruction, and then Gideon's got to choose, okay, do I take God seriously and trust him and take a step of obedience or not? And it's when he takes God seriously and he obeys, he trusts God, that God's help then comes alongside Gideon in those situations. And you see this happen again and again and again. It's an instruction, it's a choice of obedience, and then he experiences God's help again and again. And what happens is God, or Gideon's confidence in God grows. And as it grows, the stakes get higher and the risks are greater. But then God's help is swifter and it's more powerful and it's more real in Gideon's life because he's shifting from the horizontal to the vertical. And the exact same thing has to happen in our life. And the reality is the horizontal, it's not going to go away. The horizontal is going to be there. The fear of people, the fear of circumstances, that's always going to be there. But as we continue to take steps and look to the vertical and take God seriously, the pull of the horizontal does decrease. And what God says does become a lot more influential and powerful as we take that step and then we experience his help come along the side of us. And we realize that I'm not on my own. He is present and he is able. So for you, I don't know what your horizontal fears are. I don't know what they are. I mean, I can list off some of mine. I mean, maybe for you, you know, maybe it's, maybe you're in a dating relationship and maybe the person that you're dating is, you know, maybe there's pressure to go further than, you know, what God allows when it comes to sex before marriage. Maybe there's pressure. Maybe the fear is if I don't go along with this, then they'll break up with me and I'll be all alone. Maybe the fear is, you know, if I don't do this, then other people will know and they'll think that something's weird with me because I'm following God and I'm not just doing what everybody else is doing. I mean, I don't know what it is, but, you know, we all have these fears. Maybe it's a financial fear. Maybe you kind of look at the stuff that your family needs to live on and the amount of money that you have, and yeah, you know what God says about generosity, but you're sitting there and you're struggling with how in the world am I supposed to provide for my family and be generous the way that God has told me to be generous? I have no idea how this is supposed to work out. I mean, that's one that I struggle with. I mean, I'm, you know, being my age, a millennial, reading some of the articles written by experts on how much I'm supposed to be saving for retirement. It's insane. You're sitting there going like, how in the world are you supposed to save that percentage of your income, provide for your family, and still be generous the way that God's instructed us to be? I mean, how in the world are you supposed to do this? You know, you're just sitting there struggling, adding it up. But really what it comes down to is what am I going to place my fear in? Am I going to place my fear vertically based on what God has said, realizing that life flows from him and he controls it? Or am I going to look to the horizontal, to the circumstances, to what people think or will say or how they might respond to my decisions? That's really what it comes down to. What are we going to place our fear in? What are we going to allow to motivate us in moving forward? How are we going to operate? We're going to operate based on the horizontal or the vertical. I know for Gideon, he had no idea how this was going to work out for him. I mean, when when God first came to him, he didn't know that God was going to use him to bring about one of the greatest military victories in history. He didn't know that being outnumbered 450 to 1, he would bring about a great victory. He didn't know that over 3,000 years later, we would still be talking about him. He didn't know that. That was a guaranteed beyond his imagination. But the crazy thing is, is I know that God has a very unique and good plan for each one of our lives. I don't know what the challenges are in that plan. I know there's going to be challenges. I know there's going to be obstacles. I don't know what those obstacles are, but I know that God has a plan to use each and every one of us. And the real question is, like Gideon, are we going to repeatedly take that step of, okay, God said to do it. 
I'm pulled in these different directions. I've got these fears, but God said to do it, so I'm going to step out and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to take him seriously and recognize that life flows from him. And again and again and again, it might be the same instruction that you just have to keep walking on. I mean, it's not a one-time deal. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a new instruction. Maybe he says, hey, you know, in this situation, you know, this is the type of attitude I want you to have towards this type of person. Or maybe this is how I want you to use your words. I don't know what it is. But as we realize that, okay, as I take him seriously in the everyday flow of life, these seemingly small things, but I do what he says, I'm going to experience his help. My fear is going to shift from the horizontal to him. And I'm going to be in a position where God can use me to do amazing things. I know God's plan for you is to use you to do amazing things and for your life to count. But for us to be a part of that, our part starts with answering the question, am I going to take him seriously or not? Am I going to take that step of obedience, that seemingly small, insignificant step or not? And as we take that step, God's blessing, who knows? Who knows the people that could be impacted? How he could use us to shape this area, our families, the world. Who knows? I don't know. But I know he's got a plan. It's a good plan. And our part starts with the decision of, okay, he said it. I'm going to trust him to do it. So I'm going to take that step of obedience. And I'm going to believe that I'm not on my own. He is present. And he is able to do what he's promised to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the story of Gideon and the many other stories that you give us, stories that paint a picture of what it looks like to follow you, to take you seriously, even lays out the fact that it's a struggle, that we're not perfect, but you can see the heart and you're after our heart. And when in trust, we're saying, okay, I'm struggling with this. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to take this step. God, you, you bless that. You bless that when we shift our fear to you. You get behind that and you support that. So Father God, I pray that as we start with this story today and continue through this series, God, I pray that our approach would be shaped and it would be the approach that you say is significant, one worth living for, one that you get behind and move forward with your help. So Father, I pray that that would be the outcome. In Jesus' name, amen.